0: Look at you with your bookshelf. That's um, this is the way that we have to show off on Zoom now.
1: You get to see the bookshelves. I'm curious about the the map behind you. It almost looks like a subway system.
0: That behind me is it's the work of a guy called Richard Watson, who's a futurist, and so he's always working in the world of trends and trend forecasting. And then he, the way that he's chosen to present it is like the London Underground map. Mm-hmm. Every global megatrend I could care to think about is there on one page, so it is a beautiful constraint as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> In the world of education, I could come here and I said, G- gamification, use of AI to read and grade exam papers, just-in-time <laughs> learning, obsession with exams. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I love obsession with exams, that's well played.
0: you, you got to have an eye.
1: Third eye education. Third eye. Welcome to Third Eye. Today we are talking with Mark Barden, who we first became aware of through our communications with Myron Duack. Mark has worked with a plethora of companies, such as Sony PlayStation, Audi, Charles Schwab, and of course, he's the co-author of *A Beautiful Constraint*.
2: If you're trying to connect Mark Barden's work to the spectrum of people in the field, you, you have people like John Cabot Zinn talking about beginner's brain, or you have. Uh, Scott Sonnenschein talking about stretching. You have all sorts of folks talking about cognitive restructuring. And these ideas are all fantastic, but haven't really shown up in the educational realm. Uh, We feel like your work might find purchase. In fact, we're working with our special education team. We're hoping to do a book study over the summer with them. And uh, do you have any ideas, any specific tools, mindset-shifting concepts, Anything that can help young people to see constraint as a gift or the adults working with them to incorporate
0: your work? Mm. Well, you know, one of the things that all of those concepts have in common, I think, are kind of habits of mind, right? One of the conclusions that the book and this body of work reaches is that habits often prevent us from being innovative. Now, habits are also there for very good reasons, so we don't want to wholesale dis-habits. If you think about why they're there, it's because maybe at some point you did something that worked, and you're like, oh, that works. Let's create a repeatable formula around that, so you get better and better at doing it, and it works and works at scale, and then you can teach other people how to do that, and it's awesome until it's become a rut as opposed to a groove that you get stuck in. And so one of the first places when we're working with our clients, and I suspect it's true in the world of education too, if you are in a situation where you're facing constraints and those constraints seem to be kind of just really difficult to grapple with and holding you back every single day, is to start by asking yourself, are these habitual ways that we think about how we show up, how we teach, how we grade, how we engage, are these habits that we've developed over time still serving us? In a world that has changed profoundly since those habits were created you know and that used to be almost like a conceptual thought until covid and now everybody has a real world demonstration of how you can break all kinds of habits if you force to and the conceit of the book is just to be more proactive with challenging your habits on a daily weekly monthly basis so that you don't get stuck with out-of-date things and you do question routinely Is this the right way to go about it? And I think when Kabat-Zinn talks about beginner's mind, that's what he's asking us to do is tabla rasa, approach it differently, what comes up? And it's it's, it's fascinating how quickly that exercise can work with people if you sit them down and say, tell me about your habits and let's have a look at each one of them. And are they still the right thing? Are they still serving you?
3: You know, I think the pandemic has caused us to have to be creative in that thinking process because i was just looking at this and, and i caught myself saying this the other day it'll be great when we can get back to normal <clears throat> forgetting the fact that normal is no longer normal there is no normal anymore right. we're reinventing the next thing and if we're smart we're going to learn from the things that we developed and expand and build on that and become better than we were before
0: yeah yeah well and i and I think you know in that moment i mean this has happened to us too is To have empathy for the human beings that are in the middle of that at the very beginning of the process, right? Because when the rug gets ripped from under you like it has, whether that's in the world of teaching or the world of business, it's really easy to go to a place of fear. And from a place of fear, it's really difficult to create, as I'm sure you guys know. The start point when we sit down and have these conversations with people about how can we find the beauty in constraints the place that we have to start with is an acknowledgement that most of us will start in the victim mindset. Yeah. Oh, why did this happen today? Why did this have to happen to us? That's going to be impossible to overcome. And it's an inevitable human reaction to massive amounts of change. And we, in our own business, having written a book about Beautiful Constraint, our work was showing up in person, doing workshops with people in physical spaces. Yeah. And so when lockdown happened, we we're like, oh, that's the end of our business, I guess. <laughs> right i'm sure you probably were like how are we going to teach when we can't get people into schools yeah and so we've had to adjust to doing stuff like this and there are aspects of working on zoom that are beneficial that are actually better than showing up and physically doing it in in, in in a workshop setting so i think starting with empathy which is it's going to be difficult let's have a cathartic experience allow people to moan a little bit about it get all that out Get rid of the victim mindset, which assumes that the constraint necessarily means you have to lower your ambitions and performance and move into the next stage along, which is kind of what we call the neutralizer, where you can get people to the place of going, yeah, okay, I guess this does suck. But I guess if we do this and then we do that, we cluge together some solution, we might be able to meet the same ambitions, even despite the constraint. And once we've got them to that point, then we can start to look at, well, are there opportunities here for profoundly reinventing the way that we do things?
2: We all need purposeful times to moan, and that includes students in our classes, yeah. uh, whether that be because of COVID or because we just assigned an essay. They don't like the score they got on that essay.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I have a client who... Um, I'll mention them. I don't think they would mind. Lululemon is a client of ours. And so that is a business, but it's a business built on yoga principles. And they start every meeting with what they call a clearing. Does anybody have anything they need to clear before we start? And it's an acknowledgement that if you've got something on your mind that's preventing you from being fully present, then you need to get rid of it. And so they allow people a moment to download what that is. And then once it's out, they can move it aside and get on with the work. And again, these human dynamics, I've started getting into the habit before every Zoom call. If you think about the human beings that are on the other side of it, they show up, they've just come from another Zoom, and a Zoom before that, and a Zoom before that. He's just creating some space at the very beginning to say, okay, let's make a transition here, right? Get a glass of water, step outside, maybe we take a few breaths together. And we just allow people to arrive in this meeting and not the other one. Yeah. Very stressful time for kids. I've got two teenagers upstairs and it is not easy. And we have it good. I've got to tell you a story. One of the main uh, protagonists in the book A Beautiful Constraint is an educator called Dr. Louise Waters, who ran leadership public schools in, in California. And I won't tell her story, partly because I think you guys should have her on.
1: <laughs> I love
0: <laughs> it. Her, tell her story. She's awesome. And also it's in the book, so if people are interested, they can go go and figure it out. But she just told me a story about an organisation in Oakland, and it's an organisation called REACH. So Oakland, it's, you know, historically underserved communities, very stressed out, don't have the technology, are wondering, is this another time when our kids fall even further behind than they currently are? And there's a community-based organisation called REACH that a bunch of parents got together to build, in collaboration with some of the teachers, to create a support group for families who are now having to take on some of the responsibilities of teaching their kids over an unfamiliar technology called Zoom and figure out how to help them work with the new technology. The consequence of that constraint and the the way that the community rallied to meet the moment was that now parents are much more engaged. The whole community's rallied around. They're having full family learning moments in the evening where kids and parents gather around zoom and learn together and apparently it's brought people together in a way that they weren't before it's given parents lots of experience of working with technologies that they're going to need in 2021 and so on and so on so the constraint of holy moly we can't actually go to school in lockdown has actually turned into quite a beautiful thing i don't want to suggest for any minute that that was a good thing that they wish to know you know that everybody wished the pandemic would have happened because clearly that's Not to be sort of um, too glib about this stuff, but there are opportunities in the constraints.
3: No, we. I think we've recognized that as a matter of fact, that up until now, getting teachers to consider embedding technology into their instruction in some way that fosters collaboration such in in other ways, there was a resistance. There was some joiners, but a lot of people just holding back. Mm -hmm. And, And come March of last year, that was no longer an option. And, and to credit uh, Nick and his partner at the time, they embedded a brand new practice within nine days. Teachers were teaching in a way they never taught before, and they were doing great work. Mm. But, I mean, they adapted fast because of what other choice did they have? Yeah.
1: We did a podcast interview recently with the rapper and writer Dessa. And when we were talking with her, she talked a lot about how obviously doing live concerts and things like that has changed a lot. The music industry has changed a lot, Mm. but she was able to do something new, which was to release this new album called Ides. But instead of releasing it as one album that she then tours in relation to, she's releasing each song on the 15th of each month hence the name. And right there, like when I was reading your book, that example kept coming up. The other thing I was thinking about, Mark, is towards the end of your book, you talk about an example with Theodore Geisel, with Dr. Seuss, right? And how he wrote Green Eggs and Ham Using 50 Words or Fewer. A colleague of ours, Jean Procott, who does the same thing for writing prompts. She will give herself like 10 words and say, okay, I have to use five or six of these in my piece. And that constraint will actually give her something that can propel her forward. And we in education talk a lot about giving kids choice. And I wonder about how do we balance that providing them with choice, but also providing them with the constraints that allow them the focus, but also the autonomy to do good work.
0: Yeah, that's that's. great story thank you for sharing that and yeah the Theodore Geisel one's a classic isn't it I was thinking about so you know anticipating this question coming up so I have no idea if this is a good idea or not so you know in the spirit of beginner's mind sometimes it's spot on and sometimes it's a million miles away but I was thinking about you know the convention the path dependency the habit that my girls certainly on the receiving end of is the teacher sets an assignment maybe let's say you read a book and here's the essay question And you'll hand it in a week from now. That's, you know, generally speaking that I was thinking, hmm, you know, what I've seen happen in our work with clients is the imposition of less time can actually be a stimulant for more creativity. So just like less words created green eggs and ham, less time can create. So there's a number of ways to mess with and play with the constraint of time. So one of the examples might be, So in that moment where you're about to set the question, say to the kids, all right, well, rather than me tell you what I think the question would be, we've got 10 minutes to come up with 10 questions. Now that's not enough time. So what you're immediately doing, you have to censor that, so the self-censoring element goes away. You've got 10 minutes, get them down on paper. So everybody starts weighing in and you can use um, the chat function on Zoom, for example, to, what are the questions you would ask if you'd read this book? Get a bunch out, not enough time, and then ask them to choose one of their friend's suggestions as a way of writing essay. But that, you know, messing with the with the time allowed and getting the students to think about the questions first rather than the answer is a different flip on that.
3: I think it's a great idea.
1: It makes me wonder. Hmm. You also talk a lot in, in Beautiful Constraint about uh, propelling questions and how the right question can really propel us forward a couple of things. One, can all questions be propelling? And how do we teach our teachers and teach our students to ask questions that are propelling?
0: Brilliant. What a great question that is. So no, not all questions can be propelling. So there is a very specific way that we think about how to design the questions in the right way when faced with a constraint so that it will propel. And the answer is somewhat counterintuitive. So a constraint happens, immediately we want to reduce our ambition. So the the process is to create an even bigger ambition. So rather than shrink the ambition, make it 10 times as big, three times as big. And then couple that to your constraints. So an example of that might be the Oakland REACH organisation. How can lockdown, where we have no school, increase the engagement of students, families and the community in the world of education? So you're actually increasing the ambition. And what that does is it just forces you out of your path dependency. So, you know, I spoke about the neutralizer space. So if you don't massively increase the ambition, you can sometimes get to that middle ground of, well, we've kind of neutralized the constraint. But it's not going to feel like a radical innovation. It's not going to feel like a breakthrough piece of thinking. And so in order to force real novelty, really radical ideas into the conversation ask a question that is even more ambitious than the one you were perhaps dealing with before and it forces you not to go back to just tuning the current motor does that make sense yeah Mm.
3: you mentioned Louise waters she was one of your speakers and she talked about Mm -hmm. the bold ambition of her school district and to address lack of engagement and how much advancement they made with kids just by taking that and taking a bold look at something They made big steps.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so the story there in a nutshell is leadership public schools has three schools and they serve underserved areas. So the kids often arrive, you know, maybe they've done babysitting all night because the parents are working a second shift. Maybe they're homeless. You know, the kids are by the time they get to high school, three or four grade levels behind. Now, it would have been easy for the group of teachers there to say, let's get them up, let's catch them up one grade or two grade in the time they're in high school. Yes. But they set themselves the ambition of getting every student in the school college ready without remediation by the end. Almost impossible. They didn't, in truth, meet that goal. But by setting the goals so high, it forced them to do quite novel things. But it forced them to, to find those kinds of novel solutions that nobody in their space had thought of before. Yeah. And that was a big part of their success.
2: Is there something there to the mindset? I've certainly been in environments where people set ambitious goals and the reaction is, well, that's impossible. Right. When you talk about replying with yes, if, as opposed to no. Does every person in an organization need to have that mindset in order to achieve these things? Or is it modeled by... Uh, Leadership, how would you recommend building that
1: culture?
0: Yeah, that's great. The stories are important. That's why our book is full of stories, and that's why I'm so interested in Heather's story. Because, again, going back to victim mentality is human nature. When faced with a constraint out of nowhere, it's easy to lose your sense of motivation. The way that we found to get that back is to say to people, Look, by the way, the concept that we're talking about here is ancient, right? Somebody was telling me about the Stoics, you know, the obstacle is the way. This is all the way back there. So they knew that, you know, it's embedded in, in every culture in the world as some kind of version of when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. It's just that the process we found was lacking. Fantastic aphorism. How do you get started? And one of the key ways to get a group started is to say, tell me some stories about how you or someone in your family or a rapper that you know just to be clear for for listeners about the kind of stories we want are not how we overcome hardship those are great stories there's lots of them but it's how the hardship led to better led to beautiful that's the critical thing and so when I start this kind of work with people I'll say beautiful constraints here's the concept I want you to think between now and the next time we meet about a story from your own personal life or somebody in your family that um, exhibits this behavior. And people will say, oh, you know, I was training for a marathon and I was on track to beat beat my PR and I thought that was going to be great. And then I got injured, but I wanted to make the race. So I spent the next two months in the pool, running in a pool. And it turns out that that was much better for my body. I went into the race feeling fresh and I beat my time hmm. and and so on and so forth. Everybody can find a story. And what a great, in fact, this would be a fantastic thing to, to ask for now is to ask the students. Do you know of a beautiful constraint story in your own life or in your family's life or in the life of a sports star you love or a rapper that you like or a movie star that you know, whatever, somebody from popular culture and you fill the space with the positive energy of that. And you can't but help but be completely bought in by the end of it. Well, practically an everyday thing at this point. So how do we get started, Mark? And then you start going, right, let's build a propelling question. And then let's get involved in some can-if kind of thinking. And you referenced this, Nick, obliquely in, uh, a few minutes ago. It would be worth putting it out there right now. At the heart of this and the stickiest aspect of this process is can-if thinking. And it simply means that you begin every conversation, once you've framed the impossible question, the propelling question, to begin every conversation around looking for solutions with, well, we can if we give everybody the technology in Oakland to have Zoom calls and we hold classes in the evening so the parents can attend. Hmm. Not possible pre-COVID very possible now because they're all in lockdown too well half them are so you know the can if keeps positivity in the conversation and it is hard i don't again i don't think we need to be too glib about oh solutions materialize in an instant when you framed your propelling question you've done some kind of thinking it's a grind and you have to go round and round and round but keeping that phrase ever present in the dialogue injects positivity and optimism into the conversation that keeps you going.
1: I think about the intentionality of that. In in the world of improv, uh, in theatre improv, there's the yes and phrase. Yeah, yeah. And as soon as I heard can if, I thought right away that, that is an active, intentional version of the improv's yes and. Something you were just talking about before reminded me of, and maybe you're familiar with Tim Ferriss, and I think it was maybe four or five years ago, he did a TED Talk called Fear Setting, Mm. um, which which is very related to what you were just talking about, that concept of taking the constraints and the things that might be limiting you into doing things and putting them out there, right? And then working with them and around them and through them by just owning them, by labeling them and, and being able to move through that. So just, just some connections that, yeah. as you were talking.
0: Well, and there's another aspect of the storytelling that I think is important too, and it, it perhaps maps to Tim Ferris's insight. So Dr. Gabrielle Ertingen, who runs the Motivation Lab at NYU, she told us that she has this idea of mental contrasting and how important that is to motivate people. She works in the world of, you know, drug addiction, for example. So she says, you know, when you're working with an addict and you're trying to get them into a sort of can-if mentality and get themselves out of the problem, you need to do both the dwelling on what happens if I don't fix this. And you let them tell a bad, bleak story to themselves about how grim it gets. And then to flip into the positive can-if story... What happens if you get out of this? How does your life get better? And have them play that story out. And then the motivation to change behavior comes from the tension between the dark story and the light story. Part of leadership in business, when things get tough, which they always do in the face of um, needing to grow a business in the face of constraints and so on, a good leader is going to be able to find the right balance between I need to scare you just a little bit with what happens if we don't get our act together, at the same time as providing hope and leadership and enthusiasm about how great this is going to be for all us if we get it right. So I think that's a nice kind of, you know, not to be too Pollyanna-ish about the optimism and positivity of kind of thinking, but to keep it really vivid. If we don't do this, our students fall even further behind than they already are. Yeah. Let's not let that happen.
3: Yeah. I'm associating this right now with the fact that we've got to do strategic planning for our district. And i got to get your book in everyone's hands to get them in the right mindset to start bringing them along on this, that this infinite sort of mindset that we can propel and go forward. Positivity or realistic and then positive, shifting to that positive mode, you know?
0: Yeah. And Louise Waters talked about this with Leadership Public School and it connects to the conversation from a few minutes back about does everybody need to buy in and you know the answer is when I'm working with a client and I have 50 people in a program or 20 people in a program not everybody's going to be buying in and not everybody's going to be able to arrive there but you do need a sense of critical mass in the room otherwise it's too easy for the naysayers to unravel things so I do think some time spent at the beginning of a program strategic strategic planning process Getting everybody to arrive at that mindset and creating the conditions for success before you get into the problem solving is really important. Getting them all to believe that it is possible.
3: I like the idea of actually putting a time limit on brainstorming and having people put out ideas about what do they value, what's important, what do we need to see, what do you envision, you know, what do you dream of. Mm-hmm. That'll be kind of fun.
0: A lot of research has been done on the value of not giving people enough time. It's a beautiful constraint.
2: Classroom teachers frequently think to themselves, well, what do I do for the kids that finish first? Instead of thinking, you know, how can I end this as soon as the first kid is done and still have everyone take away what's valuable? And that creates a constraint. I'm not saying tell your whole class that when the first student's done, you're done. That's going to create an odd incentive. But... You yourself to know, when I see the first person about to start throwing spitballs, uh, that that moment is when we're all done.
1: You know, Mark, you talk a little bit about how all individuals can become transformers. You're not born that way. And you also, in that same chapter, talk about projecting into the future that we're going to need more of that type of leadership. Right. Which means we not only need to create teachers that are transformers, but we also need our teachers who become transformers to create students who are transformers. Mm. Do you have any thoughts about how we can start growing that in our youngest students?
0: I would draw inspiration from your, I don't know if Myron was on your previous podcast or the one before that, but Myron is taught me, I think, something, a really important lesson about you know, he made a beautiful constraint part of his leadership curriculum at the school in British Columbia that he teaches at. And again, the students had a very practical example, which I presume he spoke about on the podcast about how do we do fundraising at a time when we can't actually physically meet anybody. And initially, they got into that victim mindset, and then later on, they transformed it. And we. Adam and I did a a virtual Zoom class with with his class, which was brilliant. Myron told me that after after the course, one of his students came up to him and said, I feel really optimistic for the first time in a long time. And the reason is, and what we'd arrived at together, the conclusion was that what the pandemic has taught us, unfortunately the hard way, is that constraints can be beautiful, that you can use the moment, no matter how bad it is. And again, don't want to be dismissive about half a million deaths in the US. The ability to solve little problems in our local lives and make those constraints beautiful can ladder up to a culture, if we get really good at doing this together, that can tackle some of the massive problems that are coming down the pike. Robots taking all the jobs or climate change affecting... Agricultural, you know, any number of major problems can be addressed if we have a set of simple tools and processes. Let's begin by allowing ourselves to be the victim. Then let's identify how the habitual ways that we solve this problem no longer serve us. So we know what to break. Let's form a propelling question that forces us onto new paths. Let's use can thinking in the solution finding. Let's continue to motivate and remind each other why we're doing this by painting pictures of light and dark. Those, those are relatively simple tools that lots of us can learn to use with each other. Um, and they can, they can create the kind of transformers that we talk about in the book. And well, how wonderful would it be if some of your teachers start to just weave small amounts of that into the way that they think about their teaching kids?
2: <laughs> I agree. And before we started, Mark, mentioned that we have a constraint, which is a time limit on our platform here that has caused us to become a little innovative and come up with, in the blink of of three eyes, some rapid fire questions here at the end and make sure that we hit our time limit.
3: I will kick us off then. What podcast, book, show, or whatnot has been influencing your thinking lately?
0: So the book is Stealing Fire and it's written by Jamie Wheal and the notion is um, the the book is about how to find flow states so flow states are those moments where we are supremely creative we're at our best We've, we're operating at a highest level they're fleeting the book is about how you can create them more routinely in your life and it's been really powerful for me stealing fire
1: you're speaking my language when you talk about flow there it is <laughs> We really value innovation. What's one innovation that you've seen recently that you would really like to see?
0: Yeah, great. In the book, when we were writing it, we talk about vertical farming and all kinds of innovation in the world of farming, irrigation and so on. And vertical farming was kind of sci-fi when we started writing about it then. We We were researching it. I now have lettuce in my fridge from a brand called Plenty that was grown in an industrial warehouse south of Market. It's the best lettuce I can find. And it's super close to town. You don't have wow. to go to a field and ship stuff and burn lots of carbon getting it to me. So, vertical farming, and the brand is called Plenty.
1: Before Mike asks the last question, our SNS team is working with some of our agricultural students in Dover Yoda to grow lettuce, and they're actually growing it in a hydroponic cylinder right it's in awesome. the cafeteria.
0: Brilliant. Yeah. There you
1: go.
2: It's happening. Amazing. Kudos to Carrie Frank who put that together. Just got to throw her out there.
3: Very innovative food service person. Okay, here's the last one. Listeners inspired by today's conversation may want to take action on their learning. Besides buying your book, what might that first action be?
0: So I asked Louise Waters this question, and she said, oh, it's really easy for me. Stickiest concept in the book is can if. So when somebody comes to you with a problem, which I'm sure happens to you every single day. Yeah just begin the conversation with how can we have a can if conversation around this Mm, and that that. in itself just change now we're looking for solutions and uh she said it's really sticky everybody remembers it you can put it on a t-shirt and it's profoundly um important when you're working in higher ed in in the us
3: (laughs) and this now engages the other person in helping solve the problem working together
0: Yes, you can let's have a kind of conversation and can of conversations can be super playful you know in the spirit of improv and yes and if you've been to see any live improv it's amazing what can be created in the moment
3: amazing
0: so yeah i'm all in on that
1: oh this this has been great thank you so
3: much oh we loved it yeah this is awesome
0: i thoroughly enjoy you mark thank you likewise i really appreciate it it's awesome
1: thank you so much for listening today Please take a moment to like us on social media. Thank you very much to Mark Barton for giving up his time and his knowledge today. Thank you to Dover Yoda Public Schools, to our hosts, Nick Truxel, Mike Carolyn, and Heather Like, and to Mike Terrell for providing us with our podcast music. Please join us next time for Audrey Betcher, a national award-winning librarian talking about community and for future podcasts with Gwen Plevins and a few of our Minnesota Teacher of the Year nominees.